were not mining the coal. He sold his coal for 200% profit, came back with barrels of silver of gold. Not only did he make a lot of money, but he also managed to refrate an idiom, which you can sell coal to Newcastle. So we're talking about someone who... It's unbelievable how this guy succeeded. He wrote a book called... Um, I think I, think, I can't remember what the name was. I think it was called something like A Pickle in a Household or something like that. He had no commas, no dots. Um, there was random capitalization. And people commented about the book. It was so successful, the book, he managed to publish it in eight editions in his life. And in one of the editions, he just at the back page, he took 13 lines filled with commas, dots, question marks, etc. And he writes in the top, add pepper and salt according to your liking. In other words, I'm not changing the book, but you know, you put in whatever commas you want, wherever the dots. Uh, selling in that time, eight editions in your lifetime, especially when he printed the book about 15 years before he died, that's quite impressive. That's not bad. This is a typical example of an idiot who becomes a multimillionaire. And if you look around you, it happens to a lot of people. You see people you cannot understand how they're successful. And on that hand, you see people who have got everything, and they're just not managing to make it. You can't understand why. They've got the mind. They've got the, they've got the personal connections. They've got the empathy. They've got the IQ and the EQ. And they're just not doing it. Another example of what happens at business. Have you ever heard of Gerald Ratner? Or Ratner, you'd probably. No? Gerald Ratner was a, was a British billionaire. He owned, in that time, the Ratner Industries. Ratner Industries was the biggest jewelry network in Britain. He also had a thousand stores that belonged to him in the United States. At the peak of the time, which is 1993, Ratner Industries were worth approximately two billion dollars. That was their, no, sorry, two billion pounds. That was their value. In 1993, and this, by the way, he got this from a small business, and he managed to develop it. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. His secret was that they were not selling expensive jewelry. They were selling mundane... It was made from mundane materials, but the way way they managed to market it was unbelievable. And then in 1993, he was invited to this massive convention in England, in London, business convention, where all the... All the famous and important businessmen come from all over Britain to hear advice from the stars, how they managed to do it. And he was asked to speak. He was the guest speaker. And he gets up, and 6,000 people are sitting there waiting to hear the great Gerald Ratner tell him about how he managed to succeed in his business. And they ask him, tell me, how do you sell your jewelry, which is considered to be prestigious jewelry at such a cheap price? He says, I'll tell you the truth, because it's garbage. It cost me less to manufacture my piece of jewelry than it cost to buy you a sandwich. The next day, all of the press all over Britain was, Gerald Ratner admits, my jewelry is garbage. Within one week, his company lost £500 million worth of value. Eventually, he was fired from the company. The company changed its name to Siginet, and he went bankrupt. Until today, there's a phrase in Britain which is called doing a Ratner which means there's another phrase in Britain which says you can take your foot out of your mouth. You know that phrase? Doing a rat is sticking your foot so deep in that it doesn't come out, it probably comes out from the other side. Pardon me. That's doing a rat in business. We can see that many times a lot of things that we do has got nothing to do with our capabilities. It's got to do with something else. And the honest truth is, this is a Gomorrah. The Gomorrah says in Moed Kotsam, in the, 80, in the 28th page, first side, the Gomorrah says there are three things that are dependent on luck. Bane, children. Will you have children? Won't you have children? How will your children be? How will they come out? Chaye, longevity. 
Longevity is also got nothing to do with us. My mother, I remember, she had a student in, my, my parents live in Rehovot. They made Aliyah in the late 60s, early 70s. And by the way, we lived here for two years. I would say between 90 and 92, my father was the Aliyah Shaliyah. He worked under Solly Sachs. Those of you who remember, the Zionist Fed. We lived in Highlands North, 6th Avenue. We used to dabble a lot at Sydney High. What? Yes, I know. <laughs> so... My mother had a student who her, the student's father was the head of one of the political parties in Rehovot, a very, very rich and successful businessman, a health freak. He ran every single day 16 kilometers, every day. At the age of 48, he died in the middle of his run from a heart attack. Just like that. So longevity has got nothing to do with what you do. Now, as you know the joke about the guy who's going to be, they come to interview him, he's 100 years old, and they'd like to interview and see how did he reach that peak age. And the reporter sits with him and he says, well, I'll tell you, I was always careful about three things. One, I do not gamble. Two, I don't get drunk. Three, I don't smoke. And then suddenly, the reporter has a city that he's, he's sniffing something. It smells like a cigarette. And then he hears this scream, ah! And something falls down. And he says to him, what is that? He says, oh, that's my father. He came back again from a horse race. He's drunk as God knows what. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm saying, longevity has also got nothing to do with it. It's also luck. And the third thing the Gemara says is Mizone, which is Panossa. Panossa, many times, has got nothing to do with us. You can be born, in, born into the right family, get the right inheritance, and muck it all up. You can be born with nothing. Look at the richest man today in the world. The richest man in the world today is... Jeff Bezos, owner of Amazon. From what I understood, the last time, how much is he worth? Over, I think, a hundred something, hundred billion. Well, it's half now. Well, I know it's half now because he divorced. Yes, <laughs> I know. Well, I don't know if it's half. That the question is, the honest truth is, his wife is partners with him. I don't know. I don't know what is it. You're saying it's half, so he's not the richest man in the world anymore. Okay. story behind Yeah. Okay. Well, poor thing. <laughs> oh God. He grew up from nothing. He's an adopted child. His original name is not Bezos. He grew up in another family and he started from scrap in the garage selling books. At the time, they were trying to save so much money that one of the signs of Amazon today, have you seen a picture of their tables? He took a door, a wooden door, attached it four legs to save money on buying a desk table for the business. Until today in Amazon, in all the Amazon offices, that's what they have. And he grew up from nothing. The wrong family... And look at where he's look at where he's reached. And I can give you many examples of people like that. So that's what the Gemara says. Also, Mizone is dependent on luck. And the question is, what is luck? Now, by the way, if there's any of you who have questions or you disagree, please feel free. This is an open talk, and not. And the question is, what is luck? And our sages explained that luck is a power that affects a man. Irrelevant to what he does. It is a cosmic power. Now, interestingly, all human beings around the globe believe in this power. Whether you take Christians, Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, everyone believes in this power called luck. There are different names for it, but it's a power that affects us, irrelevant to what we do. Some will call it Murphy's Law depending on what's happening with them. Someone called it. There's also a law called Parkinson's law. All these different laws which apply to it. But, so, if luck is something that we can't affect, then what are we doing here at all? 
Okay, now let me sit at home. Maybe my luck will be that my son is going to fill out, you know, the grand lottery. Not in South Africa. The biggest grand lottery, by the way, is you know where? Who knows? Two places. One is in America. The second one is in Spain. Spain. Yes, mm-hmm. in Spain. I can't remember what it was called in Spain, but the price there, the the the, the, the prize there rates between somewhere between five hundred to seven hundred and fifty million euro when it peaks. That means no one else wins. It's not bad. Yeah, well, Abraham, it says, but Abraham, <coughs> that Hashem sitting is the end of the Oh, very good. So now we're getting to the big kasha. So Jonathan is asking a kasha. The Gemara says in Tractate Chavis on the 156 page, in Mazal Yisro. Which means it's very good, but Mazal doesn't affect Am Yisro. So. But isn't there someone else that says it is Mazal? Oh, we're going to see that's that. So Rashi there says already that even though in Mazal Yisrael it doesn't mean that Am Yisrael are not affected at all by Mazal, but it means that unlike the non-Jews who cannot change their Mazal, you do have the power to change your Mazal. And Rashi says how? By prayer and good deeds. In other words, Mazal fast is a power that you can change. We're going to give an example when we have an effect of Mazal, just before we go into the ship. Why do we always say on a birthday... In Hebrew, in English, you'd say congratulations, happy birthday. In Hebrew, you'd say mazal tov. What does mazal tov mean? What does good mazal mean? The Gemara in Yerushalmi, Tractate Rosh Hashanah, on the third chapter, eighth verse, the Gemara there says that on the day of a person's birthday, he has the power of mazal affects him incredibly. It can affect him in a good manner and in a lousy manner. So that's why on a birthday, where the power of mazal affects you more than a regular day, you say, Mazal Tov. It's a blessing. I'm hoping that today your luck is going to turn for the better. It's going to be good luck. And the question is, this is what everyone asks, can we change our mazal? Can you change it? So first of all, we saw from Rashi, you can change your mazal. Through prayer and through good deeds, you are able to change your mazal. But in order to be able to change your mazal, we have to realize three things, which are three main rules. These rules are, this is the problem, this is where, I'm, and I'm speaking also foremost, I'm sorry, first and foremost about myself, please don't think, I'm, I'm very good maybe at lecturing to others, but that doesn't mean that I'm living this. Rule number one, Hashem is good to us. He wants to give us the best that we should get. We say every day in Tehillim, in Ashrei, Tov Adonai Lakol Kol Hashem is good to all and he has mercy on all his creations. It's like a father. I have children. I want to give my children the best that they can get. The thing is, many times what my children think is for the best, I tend to disagree. Like, for example, my son very much wants to buy an electric scooter. Now, I am a paranoid father. I have uh, many phobias and fears, especially when they get on these things. I won't even, I, I, it took me years to allow them to buy rollerblades. Okay? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't like these things. I really don't like these things. My son wants to buy an electronic scooter, an electric scooter, but in my point of view, it's not good for him. You know, I don't know what goes on here in South Africa. In Israel, it is a dangerous, a very, very dangerous transportation instrument. What? Hopefully, we'll change next month. Yes, I know they're trying now to regulate the rules, no, but you know, I know. But even with implementing the rules, you know, something. Do you know how many times I've seen in my neighborhood the police? 
trying to catch those children on their electronic, on, on their electric bicycles and scooters, and the children running around, and the police on his motorcycle is trying to chase them and is not getting them. So much so that police have now are now trying to have a new force of police officers riding on electric bicycles to be able to chase all of this. It's not working. It's like it's hilarious. Now. My child wants an electric motor. He wants an electric scooter. I think it's not good for him. So Hashem is good for us, but many times what we want is not what is good for us. I'll give you an example about money. I had one of my Avrechim who, 10 years ago, he was at the pinnacle of my koila. He was number one. He was so brilliant, and he's a choyze bichuva. He was a professional soccer player. He was an Israeli international team at the age of 21. No, sorry. He was a candidate for the Israeli. He was a, he was a candidate for the Nivcherat Israel. I've seen him play once. And this is after years. He's not professional. He's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, he's like 30 years old. And he's unbelievable. And he did tshuva. And he became an avrich. And he's obviously got a brilliant mind. He used to be able to remember every single paragraph nearly by heart. Rabbonim used to come to Koyal and speak and they were intimidated of opening their mouths in front of him. And this is about tshuva, a breast liver in a Koyal. And he had a very, very difficult financial time in the first two years that he was learning by me. And I remember it really bothered him and he prayed on it a lot. And his father-in-law managed to hit the roof, literally. His father-in-law started, oh, he opened the business, his father-in-law made millions and millions, so much so that his father-in-law put in every single month into their bank account as their monthly stipend, 80,000 rand. Not including, of course, buying them an apartment, two cars, and having vacations and everything that they want with the father-in-law credits card, irrelevant to the 18,000 shekel, the 20,000 shekel, which is 80,000 rand stipend. And his life got mucked up completely. First of all, money caused him to leave learning. Then his father-in-law was arrested because it seems that his father-in-law, the whole business was an IRS bogus business. His father-in-law has been incarcerated for 15 years. They've lost everything. Even their apartment now, which they finally managed to sell, the, the state of Israel took 70% of the value of the apartment because they claimed that the father still owes the money and it was a whole debate for years they've been trying to sell this apartment. He now works as a messenger, an errand boy riding on a scooter from place to place in Yerushalayim delivering packages. He's not learning. He's not succeeding successfully. And, and he comes several times to Koilel to sit and learn with Manu and he says that it's ruined his life. The money has ruined his life. That's what Shlomo Amelech says, Sometimes riches is guarded for someone and it's only going to bring him down. So again, many times we ask Hashem to do what we think is good, but it's not necessarily what's good for us. So when we ask for Hashem, we need to know how to pray. Praying has got to be in a way such as, Hashem, I really would like to be extremely rich. I'd like to make 500,000 rand a month net profit. But... I don't know if it's good for me. That's what I'd like. I trust you to do the best thing for me. Second thing, when we pray and hear, I'm saying also about myself, I also I mess this up a lot of times. Hashem doesn't owe us anything. Even though He wants to give us, because as a father, He doesn't want to say anything. And we'll give a parable. I'm a father. I'd like to give my son as much as I can. But if my son came up to me and says to me, Daddy, 
you have to buy me an electric scooter. Excuse me? What? Yeah, you have to buy me an electric scooter. I'm a good boy. I do my chores, do my homework. You have to buy me an electric scooter. My reaction is, speak to the hand. Good day. And I walk away. None of us would be willing to accept just behavior from our children. I don't owe my child anything. I want to give him. I don't owe him anything. Yet when we come and we pray to Hashem, and this applies a lot also in business, we always pray in the sense that Hashem owes me. Hashem, I'm a good guy. I give stalker, I give charity. I daven, I try to do the mitzvahs. I'm respectful to my fellow man. I'm a good person. And and if I give my tithe, I give my (coughs) mass and my stalker, you owe me to be rich. You owe me. And when a person prays that way, Hashem goes, speak to the hand. You know that phrase? It's an American phrase. Speak to the hat. Again, he just walks away. It doesn't work that way. And we are always praying in such a way. You owe me. And, and, and it's, it's, it's unbelievable. So many times, Rabbi Arush told me this, so many times people, when they come to him with their troubles, one of the first things is they say is, why didn't it, why didn't it work? I prayed. And I gave tzedakah. And, and, and I did this and I did that. And, and, and I asked and I begged. and I did. Why didn't it work? It doesn't have to work. Hashem owes us nothing. There's a famous story in Israel about a woman who came once to Israel, <coughs> and she hadn't cho- she had never children for many years, and she cried in front of him, and he said to her, listen, I'm going to say to you something no one else has ever said to you. Hashem doesn't owe you children. He doesn't. He doesn't owe you children at all. Like, no one speaks to me that way, but you know, I'm sensitive. No, I don't. He says, he doesn't owe you children. And she said, then what do I do? He says, listen, he said, if you do something extra, then maybe Hashem will do something extra for you. So I promise, maybe. She opened this massive organization to deliver sweets and candy and food to children who are in hospital. And Baruch Hashem, several years afterwards, she had her first child. She has already now several children. This business is going on. She's still alive. And she tells the story. For years and years, she didn't have children. Hashem doesn't owe us anything. Hashem doesn't owe us panosa. Hashem doesn't owe us health. The mere fact that we are sitting here now breathing without a breathing machine, Hashem doesn't owe us to be able to breathe without a breathing machine. He doesn't. If already we owe Him much more than what He gives us. The Ramban says, it is worth coming to this world, suffering for 120 years, just to do one mitzvah. Just to do one mitzvah, it's already worth it. You're already going to get it. And it was already worth stepping on the foot of this planet just to do one mitzvah. Hashem doesn't owe us anything. And when we look around, we'll see that there's so many good things that Hashem has given us. For example, I'm highly asthmatic. Hashem doesn't owe me health for me to have good lungs and not to be asthmatic. But when I look at all the good things that it's given me, here, I can speak and give a share without even using my inhaler once. That's not bad. You know, some people can't do that. And we have to instill this into our minds. That Hashem doesn't owe us anything. And if we come to the third thing, we have no problem to accept. I'm going to speak about myself, and I'm going to give an example as Jonathan Rogoff. I have no problem to accept the fact that due to my genetics, I'm overweight, and he's not. I would like to look much more like Jonathan, and less like me, but I realize that this is the way it is. What can I do? My father's overweight, and it's genetics, and... This is the way I look, and this is the way he looks, and he can eat whatever he wants, and he'll stay looking like that. And I eat one pastry, and 
Mm, okay? <laughs> that's the way it is. And we're willing to accept this on many things when it comes to do with health, when it comes to do with looks, when it comes to many things. There's one thing that we are never willing to accept that when it comes to panosa. It's unbelievable. When it comes to money, why is he more successful than me? Why? Why? I think I'm cleverer, more capable. I understand the market much better. I had a brilliant idea that he didn't have. Why is he more financially successful than me? And suddenly, when it comes to Panossa, no one, barely no one, is happy with their lot. When it comes to weight, we cope with it. We're not necessarily happy with it, but we accept it. This is what we can do. When it comes to our the way we look, hair, whether we tend to lose our hair at an early age, at a not an early age, keep there, all these other things, glasses, money, we're never willing to accept it. We are always comparing ourselves to others and we are never happy with what we get. And the reason is, is because on all the other things we realize it's got nothing to do with us. Genetics has got nothing to do with me. So it's got to do with my parents. It's not really got to do with my parents, it's got to do with their parents. <laughs> so on. And with many other things, we're willing to accept that. With money, we believe that it's got to do with our actions. And therefore, we're not willing to be happy with our lot. We're not willing to accept what's going on. But we just said that also money's not going to do with us. These are things that in many times, it depends on other things. Things that are not necessarily in our control. And in most times, they're not in our control. Not only that, take the most successful businessman. Is there a businessman that at a certain time didn't have a hard time? I don't know if that such a thing exists. You're the businessman here, not me. So you're going to tell me. I'm not a businessman. I'm a rabbi. Is there a businessman that everything always goes uphill? No one ever has hard times. Everyone also has hard times. And the hard times, are, many times, are not gonna, we don't control them. Look at what's going on now in South Africa. I mean, the way people are speaking, this country is trashing itself. Literally. I mean, people here are afraid of recession, economy. Is there going to be electricity? No electricity. Yes, water. No water. Etc. Etc. Recession. People are suddenly not buying. People are not purchasing anything. And suddenly we see all these other businesses that are also falling down. Why, when it comes to money, are we not willing to be happy with our lot? To realize that we're doing our part, but the outcome is not dependent on us. And these are the three key things that we need to know in order to progress and to go to the next stage, that first of all, Hashem wants to give us the best thing for us. But we do not necessarily know what's best for us. Second thing, Hashem doesn't owe us anything. So even when we come to pray, we need to pray asking. Hashem owes us nothing. And the last thing is, we need to be happy with our lot financially, not just genetically and physically. We also have to realize that what we have is what Hashem wants us to have. And now we come to the question of how we start affecting our mazal and how we start affecting our panasa. We're going to bring several sources of the things that do affect panasa. Let's start with the first source. Even though this is a source from the words of Rabbi Nachman, this is something that everyone is going to agree. Rabbi Nachman says in two places. He says this in Likutei Moharan on chapter 59 and chapter 68. He says there's one thing that really, really ruins panasa. Do you know what that is? Now, this is a trait that no one here has, except for me. So it's not relevant to you. I'm just saying it as a thing. It's called anger. Okay, no one here has ever been angry, right? <laughs> anger is probably an epidemic of our generation. So much so that one of the biggest, 
one of the biggest movements now, not movements, therapeutical movements and therapeutical programs in Europe and in America is anger management. We live in an angry generation. Now, anger is not necessarily being angry the Israeli way, which means that if someone takes you over, you get out of the car with a baseball bat. <laughs> okay, I'm not, that doesn't have to be that way. Okay, Israelis, not, it's not that Israelis are less or, or more angry than others. They simply, they externalize the way they feel. <laughs> South Africans also get angry, just they keep it inside. And Abu Nachman writes, and he brings several sources, also from the Zahar, that say that whenever... Hashem wants to bestow upon you riches, He is going to give you a trial of anger. And when you have a serious trial of anger, know that you are now supposed to get the gift of Panasa. And if you fail, it's taken away. So every time from now on you're going to get angry, you're now going to have serious guilt trip. I missed also that. So it's going to get even worse. Anger is one of the main things that ruins Panasa. It's a spiritual thing. It's not necessarily a business. It's not necessarily a business technique because we do know businessmen who are very successful. And they're very angry all the time. But from a spiritual point of view, the less angry you get when you control your anger, you're able to get panasa. That's one of the things. In other words, controlling now an anger. Rav Arush always writes. He says the best schoolers that everyone loves doing. Do you know what they are? Schoolers for panasa. It's got to do with money. Oh, those are the best things. Like, for example, there's a skula mm-hmm. the, the skula is of reading the Pasha Saman, the section of the Torah of the man, and reading it on the Tuesday when you read that section in Eretz Yisrael. There's no such thing as someone in Eretz Yisrael on that Tuesday not reading that section. It doesn't exist. And you'll see the wife calling the husband, Have you read it? Have you read it? Read it again. Read it a third time. Have you read it? When it comes to schoolers for Panasa, we are all willing to go. So here's a big schooler for Panasa. Don't get angry. I, I know, easier said than done. Much easier said than done. I'm also, I can say it about myself. I, 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 I do, I, I have an anger management problem. Rav Arish was working. When I, when I reached Rav Arish, it was much, much, much worse. I was a, oh, I was fire. And Rav Arish was trying to calm me down. And it's, it's working, partially. I've still got to work on it. It's going to take me a few more years. But then again, I'm still young. I have another 80 years to go Bezrat Hashem to the 120. So I'm going to be able to, I hope, work more than anger. Anger ruins Panosa. Second thing. Another thing that tends to ruin Panosa and to ruin luck is when we behave in an undignified manner, especially in business. Why is that? The world works measure to measure. We'll see around us many people who will step on others and it will look like they're successful. But at a certain stage, they're going to fall. They're going to collapse. Even if not financially, in many, many other things. It could be from the point of view of domestic relationships between them and their spouse. It could be with their children. It could be with their health. It could be with their mental health. You will never be successful, especially not in business, when you're the way you conduct business is in an immoral manner. It doesn't work that way. The world is built in a way that when you step on someone else, Hashem is going to step on you. And when He steps on you, it is much more painful than when you step on someone else. I'm going to give a story. The Gomorrah brings a story. I've said this story several times here this week. I've been here. 
The Gemara in Tractate Yavomus, on the 62nd page, second side, the Gemara brings a story, sorry, Ketubas, 62nd page. The Gemara there brings a story of a rabbi called Rav Rechumi, an Amora, who used to live in Eretz Yisrael and at the times of the Gemara, and he used to go home, he used to come home every single year on Erev Yom Kippur, leave right after Sukkot, go learn a whole year in Yeshiva. His wife was a real tzaddikist, she let him learn for a whole year. And every single year he used to come back on Erev Yom Kippur, it's more or less a set time, 11, 12, and one year the Gemara says there was a very interesting debate and argument in the Yeshiva, and he remained there, and he was direct. And his wife is waiting, it's 12, and he's not there. One, he's not there. Two, he's not there. <coughs> she got worried. Three o'clock, and she was so upset, the Gemara said she shed one tear. A tear. At that time, the Gemara says, Rav Rechumi was on his way back, he was resting for a second at a tavern on the way to his city, and he was sitting on the second floor. Second floor collapsed, Rav Rechumi fell down to his death, and that was his punishment. Chaim Shmuelevitz, Rosh Hashiva's mirror, wrote a book, an incredible book, called Sichot Musal, Musa Talks. And in the articles of year 1971, in the 10th article, he brings this story and he asks, okay, wow, now she's genuinely going to be happy. I mean, you know, she shed one tear because it's late. What, what, what is she going to feel now? She's just now become a widow. What kind of punishment is that? Okay, no problem. He caused her to shed one tear. Then Hashem should punish him by causing him to shed one tear. What kind of a punishment this is? This is not measure to measure. And the Mishnah says in Tractate Sota, on the 8th page, second side, that this is the way the world is built. Measure for measure. This is not measure for measure. Says Reb Chaim Shmuelevitz, measure for measure does not apply when you hurt someone else. Hashem created his world. This is a law, a given law. You hurt someone, you will be punished much more severely than what you did. And this applies especially in business. Because business world is a difficult world. I can see the shyness that I get. The questions that I get in business, being able to conduct yourself in a moral way all the time is not easy. That's also why the Gemara says on Tractate Chabas on the 31st page, the Gemara says, what is the first thing a person is asked when he passes away and he goes up to Shammai? First question. Did you conduct yourself in business? in a faithful and moral way? Why is that the first question? Because it's really difficult, especially in today's business world. I mean, I'm sure every one of you knows exactly what I'm speaking about. People who you've met through your careers who conducted themselves in a very immoral way. How do you deal with them? What do you do with them? Well, we need to know people that conduct themselves immorally, Hashem punishes them. Not real punish them. Hashem punish them. Not all the times you see this punishment. I know someone in Israel, he is the biggest interest loaner in Israel. From what I know, the guy is worth about close to a billion shekel. Biggest. I'm not saying it's legal. Okay? It's biggest. He drives in a... What is his car? His car is one of the new versions, I think, of the BMW 7, which in Israel is worth about nearly a million shekel. He lives in Savion, which is one of the richest neighborhoods. Or he has a house there. I don't know where he lives. And he, he, he asked me a few shilas, and he, 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 he came to me through of Arush. His life is trashed. His life is trashed. His wife, he doesn't think, she's, he, he doesn't think that his wife is loyal. He's got three children, two of them are drug addicts. The third one, forget the third one, the third one is even worse. The third one, oh, 
The third one is coming in and out of mental institutes all the time. He has no simcha, no nachas in his life. Nothing. And he came to me, and, and this is a guy who people are petrified of him. I mean, this is a guy who, when he walks around, he walks around with a crew of people to guard him. People are petrified of him. Everyone needs him. And he sat in my office, in yeshiva, in Chuchel Chesed, and, and, and we were talking, and in the middle of the talk, he starts crying. And he says to me, Rabbi, I wish I was as happy as you are. I have a simple life. I'm not saying that I don't have a difficult life. We all have difficult lives. Life is not easy. But I have a simple life. And I'm, I'm, relatively, I'm relatively happy. I'm quite smiley. Okay, I have my problems. Health problems, other problems, workload problems. I mean, since I've been in South Africa, I landed in on Monday morning. So far... Over the past days, from month from Monday, I've slept on the plane for three hours. I've slept here in South Africa for five and a half hours in these past few days. I'm exhausted. That's why I live from coffee to coffee. It's not a joke. But I'm, I'm happy. He's not happy. He's worth nearly four billion rand. He's not happy. His life is trashed. He was crying in my office. He's not happy. Why? I, I said to him, very carefully, <laughs> very gently. Again, this is not very gently. I said to him, listen, I said to him, in your business of lying, you're always hurting people. You take high rates of interest, and when people don't pay, you take other things. And when then they don't pay, you send your crew to make sure that they pay. I said to him, the world works, measure per measure. I said, what do you expect? You hurt others, Hashem's going to hurt you. And he said to me, what am I supposed to do? I said to him, listen, I said, this is a big question. I said to him, in my opinion, I said to him, until you stop your business, it's not going to work out for you. He's not there. He didn't do it. That's the way it works. You'll see people on the outside who will look unbelievably rich, successful, and happy. And when they talk to you on a personal basis, their life is trashed. Trashed. Things that you don't even know. So that's the second rule. You want to have a happy, successful life and in business, behave morally. Conduct yourselves with dignity. Treat your other fellow businessmen, worker, with respect. You'll see sometimes people who are very successful people with big businesses, they talk to people who work under them as if they're human garbage. You're not better than me. You are not better than the man who's employed by you, whether you're Jewish and white or he's Christian and black. You're not better than him. We're both human beings. We're both created in the same form. The fact that you're Jewish means that you have more responsibility. doesn't make you better. doesn't allow you to treat another human being with disrespect, not to dignify his actual existence. You can't treat him the way you want. You can't speak to him. You can't be derogatory towards him. He's not your possession. A lot of times in business, you'll see people who do it all the time. I was sitting at a lawyer's office. We had this big issue in Yeshiva. I had to consult with him. And he's a really big lawyer in Eretz Yisrael, very successful. And he has an intern, you know, in Israel. In order, I don't know how it works here in South Africa. In order to get your law degree, I think it's called a clerk, right? You've got to do a certain period of internship. And it's like this. You're sitting here. Yossi! Café! Who is this? Is this your dog? So you speak to a dog or to a cat. 
even to a cat would probably speak better. Yossi Kafe. The guy brings him the coffee. Nothing. Nothing. He doesn't smile at him. This is, this is where he looks at him. Yossi. Sit at Mashamotilcha. Can I sit here called Ken? I did it. I did it. Yossi. Tavili Tatik. I mean, I sat there, and, and I, I'm just coming to, I, we're paying him for consultation, it cost us 2,000 shekel an hour, just so you realize how much it's worth, it's 8,000 rand, 8, rand an hour for consultation, he's that big, and I'm like sitting there, and I'm feeling embarrassed, this is the way he's treating his worker, this is, this is, this is despicable, and a lot of times we do it, I'm not going to speak about what goes on in our homes, and how we speak sometimes to our spouses, and to our kids, we're not going to go there today, we're speaking business. Conduct yourself in business morally. Be a moral person, a dignified person. Treat people with the same respect you'd like them to treat you. So these are three rules in order for us not to lose our panosa. Don't get angry. Treat people with dignity and with respect. And who remembers the last one? Come on. What? We spoke about anger. What? What? No. Business with integrity. We spoke about business with integrity. Don't get angry. Business with integrity. And here's the third rule. Remember that it is not dependent on us. Be happy with your lot. You can pray. That doesn't mean you're going to get it. And now we're going to give, towards the end of the Shia, five skulas, which our sages say that you can change mazal. Skula number one, Shabbos. Shabbos is a source of blessing. The more you respect Shabbos, the more Hashem will give you a bountiness of what He can. And I'm going to give you a story that I can tell. I have a Talmud of mine who has a degree in computer engineering. He worked at some high-tech company. I don't know how it works in South Africa, but in Israel, high-tech companies, they rise, they fall, they rise, they fall. It's one of the most precarious professions that you have in Israel. I mean, you work, you don't know what's going to happen. That's why they get a lot of money, because they don't get any other conditions. For a whole year, he was unemployed. And he spoke to me, what can we do? And I asked him, I said to him, I want to ask you a question. I said to him, it says in all the sources that the Shabbat is a source of blessing. How does your Shabbat look? Uh, he said, describe it to me. You know, we sit, we read the paper, we go to bed, we get up, we daven, we read the paper, go to bed, get up, daven, eat the I said to him, Zmiris, he said to me, sometimes, maybe. He said to him, sometimes. Okay, story for the children? No. I said to him, what do you expect? I said, look at the way your Shabbat looks. Look at the way Shabbos looks. The more you respect the Shabbos, who the Shabbos is considered to be the bride, Hashem's beloved day, respecting Shabbos is respecting Hashem. The more you respect the Shabbos, the more Hashem will respect you. And it can, I'm not saying that it must, it can manifest itself in a financial aspect. I said to him, you have to respect the Shabbat. The Shabbat, Shabbat has to look like a beautiful day, a day that everyone's expecting. You have to pre-plan it. You have to rest on Friday. This is a thing that I've heard several rabbis say that it's a pity. It doesn't say in the Torah that one of the commandments is you must sleep on Friday afternoon. Because a lot of us, when they come to Shabbos, when they, when they come to the Shabbos meal, it's... 
I mean, uh, no, no, I'm not joking. I once fell asleep in my soup bowl. In, in the soup bowl. My children will never forget that. I mean, and I had a dream I was drowning, and I was really drowning in soup bowl. And I'm waking up, and oh gosh, my children will never forget this. It was so embarrassing. I was exhausted. I didn't sleep on Friday. I really tried to even catch now a 15-minute nap on Friday before the, Shabbos, before the Shabbos meal. You've got to sleep. You've got to prepare for the Shabbos meal. You've got to buy food that you would not buy on a regular day. If you have something special, don't eat it at a weekday. Put it aside for Shabbos. Make sure that the Shabbos is something that everyone is looking forward to. In our house, for example, the children get on Shabbos morning a pekalach. Do you know what a pekalach is? Pekalach in Yiddish is a bag. They get a bag of nash. We don't give them a lot of nash during the week. Maybe they're prone also to the overweight problem like I am. Though I'm a chastei shamayim with a thank of Hashem. My kids are thin. Still, I hope they remain that way and they don't have to carry my problem. So maybe it's my wife's genes and not mine. But they get a bag of nash. Do you know? It's unbelievable. And we're talking about even my oldest, who's 14 years old. 14 years old. Do you know how they look forward towards this bag of nash that they get to eat on Shabbos morning at 8 o'clock? That we do it already on Shabbos evening and we put it in a bowl with the bags waiting for them. And they will get up at 7 and they'll go into the kitchen just to make sure. And this is my 14-year-old and my, and my 12-year-old. And they'll go in just to check, you know, the bag is there. And when can we eat it? Now, it, this is a stupid question because it's the same hour every single Shabbos. It's 8 o'clock. You don't get to eat it before 8 o'clock. <coughs> when can we eat the pekalach? Can we have it a bit earlier? They look forward to it. I sit for nearly half an hour before every Shabbos during the week and I prepare for Shabbos. I've got to prepare three stories to the kids to give them something on the Shabbos table. Etvah Torah, Etvah Locha. We sit and we sing Zmeris. We go for a walk with the children on the Shabbos. The more you invest in the Shabbos, the more you will have a chance of changing your lack with Panosa and changing it to the better. I told him this and he decided to do it. The week after he changed his Shabbos, he got an offer to work for Intel Israel. He'd been working there for more than a year. It's not a bad place to work. It's rather solid. Intel is doing rather well so far, especially in Israel. You know, you know a lot of the, for example, the, the chips in all the uh, smartphones that are Intel chips are developed and manufactured where? Israel. 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 Exactly. I think I think it's the biggest research center, if I'm not mistaken, of Intel. So working in Intel Israel is a decent job. It worked. That's one skill. The more you take care of Shabbos, the more you invest in Shabbos, the more the Shabbos and Hashem will invest in you, and it does manifest itself financially. Again, it doesn't have to happen, but there's a better chance of it happening. Second skill. This is also related to Shabbos. Sudarivit, Milavim Malka. Very few people have Melach Malka. Melach Malka, by the way, is not a Sugula, it's a Halach. The Shulchan Norich and Orachayim and Siman Shim, the 300th chapter, says you have to have Melach Malka. You have to have a Suda on Motza Shabbos, which is called Melach Malka, escorting the Queen, which is part of the Shabbos Sudas. You're saying goodbye to the Shabbos. You don't have to eat a lot. You've got to eat a Kazait of bread. That's it. If you're a Sfadi, it's in weight. You have to eat 27 grams of bread. If you're an Ashkenazi, it's more or less the volume that goes in to... Do you remember the... Uh, what are the matchboxes that we just have? The lion matchbox? A bit bigger than a lion matchbox. A bit bigger bread that you can stuff in there. You don't have to squeeze it until it all goes in. 
normally putting it in. It's not a lot of bread. That's all you have to do. What? It can be mazonis, but the best thing to do is eat bread. It can be mazonis if you have, for example, a problem you don't have time. It can also be fruit, but it, she wants you to try and do it on bread. Just like on a Shabbos meal. You, you, did you eat mazonis on a Shabbos meal? You try not to. You try to eat bread. Right? This is without sugar, right? right? That, that, that's plain and that's... But I can make you a warm one if you want. Thank you. Thank that's you without sugar. Oh, very good. There's no second in this, is no, there? No, no, no. Thank you very much. Very good. Thank you. From coffee to coffee. <laughs> you know, Yoni, Yoni laughs at me already. We went today to the kosher market. The only thing I was looking for is where do you get black coffee in this country? It's unbelievable. Every single place is they've already got Nescafe. Where's the coffee? You know, the Israeli coffee, the way we like to drink it. It's difficult to get it by. Malave Malka. A Malave Malka is a school of a panosa. It is brought in the books on the, on the verse, Im Kesef Talve'et Amiyate Animach. This is a pasuk which was referring to loaning money. Im Kesef, if you want money, Talve. Have a melave malka. Eteani mach. It will save you from being a poor person. Now, this gula is brought in many, many books. There's a beautiful book about all the halachas of melave malka, which is written by the big, big poison <coughs> in Eretz Yisrael, called Rav Pinchas Zevichi. Ha'ateret Paz. And he brings a whole book called Ashit Le'osho. He brings all the skulas mentioned in many books. This is also a skula for Panosa. Again, it doesn't mean that it has to happen. But it is a skula for Panosa. Yes? Uh, sorry, you, you can interrupt one. whenever you want. Mm-hmm. With the Malava Malka, is it best to, to say that this is Lashem, the Malava uh, Malka? Yes. Yes. No, no, no. One should say Lishabamaka. You also should light two candles. Oh. There should be two candles. You take two little candles, you light them. Like for example, we say the Aramaic version. Yes? We say David <coughs> This is for the Suda of David, the king of the Mashiach. Why? We know that the chariot of Hashem is combined of four legs. Three legs of the three forefathers, and therefore each Suda of Shabbos is parallel to one of the forefathers, and the fourth Suda is parallel to David Malka Meshicha. And that is Besodam Al Tavonafshi. What is the Posuk Besodam Al Tavonafshi? What is Besodam? Besodam is numerical value is David Amelech Seudat Melave Malka with a numerical value. The Megaleam Mukot brings it in his book as a hint at the introduction. Melave Malka. Now, there are very few people who do Melave Malka. In Brest, Melave Malka is a big thing. It really is a big thing. Not from the point of view of eating, from the point of view of singing. We sing all this mirot. We have tunes, we have discs. By us, Melave Malka is the children love it. You sit, you sing, you eat. And it's not always easy. I'm not saying that it's easy, especially after you had a good chalashadis. And if you had it in shul, and having now the Malvalka is like, like, give me a break. But this is a skula. And it's not just a skula, it's a halacha that we have to have Melave Malka. We need to have Melave Malka. It's a shulchan aruch. But when you do a Melave Malka properly, it's a skula for panos. So that is the second skula. Third skula. If we're looking for a skula for panasa, maisa, giving 10% of what we earn to Gomorrah. The Gomorrah says in Tainis, on the ninth page, and Toysus there brings the Sifri, Aser Give a tithe in order for you to become rich. 
This is one of the most difficult things for us. I mean, logically, the more I give, the less I have. So why do I want to give? When is it supposed to be finished? It was my fault, I was late. It's supposed to end at two, right? Yeah. Okay, so we're going to do this within two minutes, we're going to run through it. When I give a tithe, I'm actually showing that I realize that the money's not mine. It was deposited in my hands, and it can be taken from me whenever Hashem wants. When I give the money, I show Hashem that I respect the fact that it's His money, I'm not doing the good deeds. And in that case, Hashem will say to me, fine, that's wonderful. If that's the situation, if you're doing so many good deeds, then I'm going to give you more money. Do more good deeds. Next, Gula, Pasha Saman. We read, we spoke about reading the manna on the Tuesday of when they read that segment in <coughs> the Torah. You can read it every single day. Every single day. It is a skula for Panosa. Every single day. And do you remember the last skula? Your wife. The fifth. Your wife. Treat your wife with dignity. And why is that? The Gemara says in Tractate Baba Metziah on the 59th page, Amarava said Rava, respect your wives in order for you to become rich. The way Hashem created this world, the riches flow through the woman's influence, not through the men's. Disrespect your wife, you're blocking the heavenly connection. Respect your wife, you're opening the connection. And it'll be much easier for you if Hashem decides, and maybe he doesn't owe us anything, to give you panosa. We spoke to it about Mazel, about that power. We spoke about the fact that whether we're successful or not is really not dependent on what we do. It's dependent on what Hashem's decide. We spoke about the fact that we've got a prefit. We know that Hashem is good. We do have to acknowledge the fact He doesn't owe us anything. And not always what we think is for the best is really for the best. And we gave five scholars to change our lap in Panosa. <coughs> Observing and respecting the Shabbos. Sudhi Ravit, Malavi Malka. Respecting our wives. Giving my Sofim. And... The last one, reading the manna. One can do it every single day. It depends on all this you're doing. May Hashem bless you all with an incredible bounty of success in Panos and in life. May you be so rich that the people here will be holding the whole world of Torah all around the world and it won't even <coughs> flinch you a little bit. Amen. Amen. I made a black coffee as well with Atmuk. Thank you. Can I make you a warm one? If anybody Come wants on. to be welcome to stay to ask any extra questions if you've got. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.